What's up, everyone? Welcome to the latest episode of Note to Scene. This week, we got news from Architects, Youngblood, MGK, and Travis Barker, a radio rundown, and our deep dive on how the Wonder Years changed pop punk. You can listen to the official Note to Scene radio show over at 94.3 The X in Colorado every Saturday night from 8 to 10 p.m. local time. If you want to check it out and you're not in the area, you can download the station's app. Just search 94.3 The X in the App Store and tune in this Saturday. As always, you can listen to the songs mentioned during this episode on the Note to Scene Spotify playlist. And if you have any comments, questions, or requests for deep dives, email me at notetoscene at gmail.com. All right, let's get started. So Architects have released a new song called Black Lungs. It is the second single from their upcoming album, For Those That Wish to Exist, which will be released on February 26th through Epitaph. This is a fucking banger through and through. Feels like a post-hardcore song, but with a rock edge and that signature Architects touch big riffs, orchestral programming that ties the hook together perfectly, a breakdown that's still heavy but safe for rock radio. To me, this is honestly on the same caliber as Bring Me the Horizons, That's the Spirit. It's that good. I'm at a 9 out of 10 on Black Lungs, and I am sitting on the edge of my seat literally for this album. I'll be doing a two-part Architects deep dive in pre- and post-release weeks around the record detailing their entire history. I'm super excited for that. one. In the meantime, go listen to this song and support this band. They absolutely deserve it. Youngblood released a new song with MGK and Travis Barker called Acting Like That. Unfortunately, if you're looking for the magic from their song I Think I'm Okay, this does not deliver. It honestly kind of just feels like a b-side from Kelly's pop punk album, and I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a little concerned that he's going to have an issue differentiating his future material from that album, but this is a Youngblood song, and I believe it's going to be on his new album, which feels like it's been in campaign mode for over a year now, but no need to listen to this, just go spin the MGK album and you'll get the same thing out of it. Alright, on to this week's radio rundown. So MGK and Black Bear are still on that steady slow burn at top 40, jumping from 25 to 24 this week. All Time Low have now spent 11 weeks at number one on alt radio, and if Twitter is to be trusted, they actually have a remix of Monsters coming with Demi fucking Lovato. Two things this will do. One, kicks the door wide open for top 40 radio potential, and two, pop playlists on streaming services. If this remix works, this song might be more than double the size it is right now in a couple months. That's just so wild. IDK Howe and MGK both break even at 4 and 5 this week. I Prevail also break even at number 3 over at Rock Radio, still battling it out with ACDC and Foo Fighters. Ask Alexandria's They Don't Want What We Want drops a spot this week from 13 to 14. Still not concerned here, pretty confident this will break the top 10 over the next few weeks. Bring the Horizons Teardrops falls two spots to 30. Little bit of a stumble here, but it's still early, so not a huge concern. Architects Animals makes another big swing this week, jumping from 37 to 31. Hopefully this one sticks and we don't have any more big drops. But okay, that does it for our radio rundown this week. On to our deep dive. So the Wonder Years changed the course of pop punk, and I don't want to understate that. 
They evolved from a local easycore band to a modern pop punk powerhouse that helped lead the genre's second wave. But it feels like they've fallen from their peak in terms of relevance and influence. So have they? And if so, what went wrong? And how does a modern pop punk band grow up? Let's start at the beginning. Before the Wonder Years formed, there was a band called The Premier from Lansdale, Pennsylvania. It's pretty difficult to find info on them, but from what I can gather, their lineup was Dan Campbell, Matt Brash, Nick Steinborn, Matt Hittinger, Dave Hughes, and CJ Morgan. And they put out two releases, a six-song EP called Live Like You're Dying and a five-song winner sampler. It's kind of funny because they basically sounded like a hot mulligan or Oso oh Oso. Oh a lot of those newer sad boy emo-ish pop punk bands really think they're doing something new when local bands were sounding like they do 15 years ago. But here's what the premiere sounded like. This is their song Scenes from When I Was in Love. So after the premiere, Dan and Matt formed The Wonder Years with Casey Cavalier, Mike Kennedy, and Josh Martin. But Nick, who played in the premiere, would actually join The Wonder Years a little bit down the road. After the band formed, they released a few splits and one-offs before their first full-length in 2007. The first split was with another band called Emergency and I. The Wonder Years contributed three songs, I Fell in Love with a Ninja Master, Buzz Aldrin, Poster Boy for Second Place, and Cowboy Killers. The first two songs ended up being featured on their first album, Get Stoked On It, and all three can be heard on their demo compilation album, Sleeping On Trash, which is on streaming services. But here is Cowboy Killers. this, they did another split with a band called Bangarang in 2006. The Wonder Years had four songs on this one. During this time, the band was doing super, super low-level tours, playing houses, coffee shops, pretty much anywhere they could. So now seems like a good point to say this. Documentation for non-heavy bands is super difficult to find from the scene because the only website that documented the pop-punk emo bands in depth in the 2000s was Absolute Punk. And Jason Tate threw away his Smithsonian of scene documentation a few years ago. The archival websites that are around help, but it increases the research time tenfold. I have literally spent more time on this dive than I have on any other episode yet, just because tying together this band's timeline has been so difficult. Punk News is good for old reviews, but their tag directory is awful and makes it difficult to parse through old articles because nothing is in order. Lambgoat and the PRP honestly make it so easy because they've been around for two decades now and have posted 
posted every fucking tour, signing, song release, sales, etc, etc, and it's all right there in super neat, compact directory, and honestly, I use Lamgoat for a ton of this episode because for some reason, even they posted about the Wonder Years a ton back in the day. Forever shout out to Alex and Wukubus for doing the Lord's work for two decades and counting. Documentation is important, people. I mean, you never know when you're going to be 26 years old cursing into the void because you can't find a tour the Wonder Years went on in fucking 2007. Oh my gosh. Okay. But what I can actually verify they did that year is they signed to No Sleep Records and released their debut album, Get Stoked On It, on October 30th. Anyone who knows, knows this is a pretty infamous album, and for those who don't, The Wonder Years basically started as a jokey easycore band, from the cartoon artwork of Cap'n Crunch making out with a female Kool-Aid man, to the endless synth breakdowns. The Wonder Years started as that band. And this wasn't a huge conversation, just because the Wonder Years were so small at this point, but the forums and meshes boards back in the day instantly pitted them against Four Years Strong when this album dropped. It's just interesting because that's just not the scene you immediately think of when this band gets brought up nowadays. But it is where they came from. I was actually able to dig up Absolute Punk's review of Get Stoked On It through an archive machine, and they gave it an 85%, but Punk News was far from being that kind. Brian Schultz wrote that review, you might remember seeing his name on Alternative Press articles, he wrote for them for a while, but Brian tore this thing apart and gave it one star. He said, The Wonder Years take newfound glory's early mastery of punchy, energetic pop-punk and completely throw it down the well. Every aspect of Get Stoked On It sounds completely forced, from the gang vocal shouts and cheesy, brief little breakdowns slash mosh parts to the completely unnecessary keyboards, annoying singing, and totally embarrassing lyrics like Born To Get Fruit Punched Homie, where the band name-checked their cover star. I sure wish I had people I could trust, like my boy Cap'n Crunch. Like, really? Are they even trying? It's hard to get stoked about anything on Get Stoked On It. The only thing I'm stoked on after listening to this album is jumping through a wood chipper. Good lord, remember when the scene had a voice, guys? I love shit like this. Way to go for the throat, Brian. Look, this album is not good. For Your Strong's Rise or Die Trying came out in 2002, and that album is leagues above Get Stoked On It, even if it relies on the same tropes. No Sleep actually reissued Get Stoked On It in 2012 with a remaster. Soupy used to frequent the Absolute Punk forums pretty often back in the day, and thanks to another archive site, I was able to find the news post for this reissue, and he actually commented in the replies on it. Here's what he said. In our opinion, this record is a train wreck. Chris paid to get it remastered forever ago, and we kept trying to put off its inevitable re-release. He and I agreed that since it's already available digitally, that no real harm can come of swapping out the old mixes with better sounding ones, as long as it never gets pressed in a physical form again. That's the long and short of it. If you like the record, enjoy the new mixes. If you hate the record, I'm on your side. We won't be playing any of these songs live in support of this. We don't even consider it a re-release, just a swap out for a better mix. Remember last week when we talked about Mike shitting on early Devil Wears Prada albums? 
here we are again. Although I will say, I think Dear Love is the slightest bit more credible than Get Stoked On It, it's apples to oranges. So despite the historical backlash to Get Stoked On It, it now has actually fully been removed from streaming services. It worked for the band, and they snowballed quite a bit of momentum from it. And even though it wasn't near as much, it did the same thing Dear Love did for Prada. After this, they released a four-song EP called Won't Be Pathetic Forever in the spring of 2008. Looking back, there were still synths, but you can definitely hear the band finding their sound on this release. All of the tracks can be found on the Sleeping on Trash comp as well. It's funny how the band sanctioned that release in 2013, but Dan was pissed that No Sleep re-released a remaster of Get Stoked On It in 2012, when there were really only a few songs from Get Stoked On It that aren't on the Sleeping on Trash comp. Listen, like I said during the Devil Wears Prada dive, the artist created the art, so it is completely their prerogative for not liking what they created, but just don't make other people feel bad for liking it, and I don't think Dan did here. I'm just bringing it up for context. After this, they released, you guessed it, another split. This time with UK pop punk band All or Nothing. It was called Distances and had two other Wonder Years songs on it, both of which can also be found on Sleeping on Trash. But it was after the split that came what would end up being a pretty defining moment for the band. Near the beginning of 2009, their keyboardist Mikey Kelly left. They were still super small at this point, and people hadn't yet become invested in Dan, let alone any of the other members, so this didn't really make any waves in terms of news or discussion, because I think anyone who saw that he had left and knew the Wonder Years just thought they would get another keyboardist. But they ended up going through a small period in 2009 where it looks like their drummer Mike Kennedy wasn't in the band anymore, so Nick Steinborn initially joined the band on drums, but later moved to more miscellaneous stuff like key programming, some rhythm guitar, and other things. And that has been their lineup ever since. Honestly, most bands in the scene have way more members than they need, and there is absolutely no reason for the Wonder Years to have six members, but honestly, there is something endearing about a band who sticks together through the highs and lows after so many years. So I consider everything we just covered part one of the Wonder Years. Part two is where things really start picking up for them. In August of 2009, they began recording what would be their second full-length album, as well as the beginning of a trilogy that would launch them from hopeful locals to leaders of pop punk's modern wave. The Upsides was produced by Vince Roddy, who was one of the core members of a pop rock band called Zoloff, the Rock and Roll Destroyers. Funny enough, Anthony Green was the vocalist for Zoloff before he joined Seosin. They really remind me of that modern pop punk band mixtapes. Here's their song, This Was All a Bad Idea. So the Upsides introduced emo into pop punk in a way that it hadn't been since the late 90s. It's like pop punk was melded into emo's second wave with Saves the Day and the Get Up Kids, and then the genre sprouted off into everyone from Good Charlotte to Simple Plan during the scene's mainstream peak in the mid-2000s. And save for a few notable bands, traditional emo didn't really become reinvigorated into pop punk until the beginning of its modern wave with bands like The Wonder Years and Man Overboard. 
but The Upsides was really one of the first records to sound like what the modern wave of pop punk would become. Even though this record brought on band's new mantra of I'm not sad anymore, this thing is as whiny as you can get with Dan singing about being lonely, what his day was like, broken relationships, growing up, and all of the other stereotypical modern pop punk themes. But it was really one of the first to do it, and that's what's important here. Common denominators in memes come from things being common, but before something becomes common, there was someone who did it first. And the Wonder Years deserve the utmost credit for pioneering what would become pop punk's modern wave. The Upsides gave the band now classic fan favorites like Logan Circle and Washington Square Park, and as cheesy as some of the lyrics are in these songs, there's something about them that just gets stuck in your head even after all these years. I actually found an interview that the band's lead guitarist Casey did with Zach from Property of Zach before the album dropped. Zach had asked him what fans could expect to be different from Get Stoked On It, and he said, the Upsides definitely shows us progressing musically as well as lyrically. The new record has far more substance than Get Stoked On It did. It has a message that means a lot to us, and a general theme tying every song together. Two things you won't hear on The Upsides, however, are synth and breakdowns. Since Get Stoked On It came out, we have grown as a band and realized that these two things didn't have a place in the kind of band we had become. This is not to say that we have anything against synth and breakdowns. In fact, I couldn't be more excited for the new Motion City soundtrack record. And some of the guys' favorite bands are hardcore bands. They just weren't us anymore, and we had to be honest with ourselves. Historical context might be my favorite thing of all time. They were so small at this point, still just barely out of college, and I bet this guy was so excited someone cared about his band enough to do an interview, and he was just giving straight up honest answers. And that was that. The Wonder Years never played another synth part or easy core breakdown again. So, The Upsides was originally released on January 26, 2010 on No Sleep. Didn't chart on the top 200, but thanks to some local reporting from back in the day, I was able to dig up its first week numbers of around 1,800. After it came out, though, is when the Wonder Years started snowballing big time. Next, they went on a pretty wild tour that I see the ad map for get tossed around every few years or so. It was a Set Your Goals headliner with support from Comeback Kid, Title Fight, the Wonder Years, This Time Next Year, Smart Bomb, Make Doin' Men, Murdoch, and a very small band called The Story So Far. And what's even more crazy is how small of caps they played on that run. But at this point, the upsides had gained so much traction that the Wonder Years signed to Hopeless Records just four months after its release in May of 2010. Their first release was actually a split with a band called Fallen From The Sky, where the Wonder Years covered Ziploc by Lit. Later that year, they re-released the upsides with four additional songs and new artwork. That summer, they were direct support for Streetlight Manifesto on a nearly six-week run where they played some of the biggest venues of their career at that point. Like, they played to Metro in Chicago, which is an 1100 cap, and Starlin Ballroom in New Jersey, which is a 2500 cap. Obviously, it was Streetlight who was drawing, but it was a great look for the Wonder Years, nonetheless, so early on in their career. After this, they were support for a four-year-strong North American headliner alongside Comeback Kid. 
Then, at the beginning of 2011, the band announced that they had begun recording their next album with producer Steve Evitz, who had worked with everyone from The Cure to Dillinger Escape Plan. He was honestly a perfect fit for the band at this point. They released a collective statement in a press release, which read, Steve Evitz is a legend in our eyes. The man has produced some of the greatest pop punk and hardcore releases of all time. He has the ability to make anything from Saves the Day to Every Time I Die sound good. I trust his judgment. I think he's going to help push us to make a better record than we could ever thought possible, and honestly, I just want to bother him with questions about what it was like to record through being cool. So apparently, Evitz pushed the band pretty hard during these sessions, and Dan actually threw up twice while recording vocal takes. But you can tell in the end product that we'll talk about in a minute, the band had never sounded as developed or cohesive as they did on this album. So after they were done recording, they were added to a pretty massive UK tour that was put on by Kerrang! and headlined by Good Charlotte with support from Four Years Strong and a band called Framing Hanley. Shout out to Framing Hanley really quick, the ultimate intersection of major label emo and butt rock. After that, they came back to the States and did a quick run with Man Overboard and Handguns, and then a co-headliner with Fireworks and support from Such Gold, Make Do and Mend, and Living with Lions. Then they went on this really cool mixed bill run in Australia with Parkway Drive, Bleeding Through, and You Me at Six, and this was all in between recording and releasing Suburbia. But after that run, it was time. They announced the album will be called Suburbia, I've Given You All and Now I'm Nothing, and dropped the lead single, Local Man Ruins Everything, on April 11th. It damn near felt like a straight up rock song, it was so well produced. And once the hook hit with that line, I'm not a self-help book, I'm just a fucked up kid, anyone who was listening knew there was something special about to happen to this band. It still had the Wonder Years signature pop-punk edge, but polished just enough to make it feel like a truly marketable release. Don't Let Me Cave In came out on May 11th with the music video to boot. At this point, the band had certainly refined their crafts as musicians and songwriters, but Steve Evitz deserves so much credit for making a pop-punk album that heavily relies on traditional D-beat structures sound like something that could actually be played on rock radio. Coffee Eyes was the third single, and then Suburbia was released on June 14, 2011 via Hopeless Records. It debuted at number 73 on the top 200, selling about 8,100 units first week, which is a very solid jump from the upsides a year and a half earlier. Suburbia is absolutely in the top five best modern pop-punk albums. Came Out Swingin' might be the best pop-punk album opener of the last decade. Local Man Ruins Everything is a near-radio rock banger. I Won't Say the Lord's Prayer is the emo ballad. Don't Let Me Cave In is a classic to this day. It might be the second best modern pop punk album, right behind Nick Deep's Life's Not Out to Get You, of course. But Suburbia is out, and what's the best case scenario for a scene band who has genuine hype to do the summer after they drop the biggest album of their career? You guessed it, Play Warp Tour. And that's exactly what they did. They weren't playing main stage, but they did draw pretty consistent crowds that entire summer. And outside of the scene's modern metalcore renaissance, modern pop punk was just starting to bubble and it was about to blow up over the next few years on Warped. Afterwards, the Wonder Years headlined a UK tour with Valencia and Such Gold. And in the fall, they supported Newfound Glory on the Pop Punk's Not Dead tour alongside Set Your Goals, Man Overboard, and This Time Next Year. 
The following spring, they headlined the 2012 Glamour Kills Tour with Polar Bear Club, Transit, and The Story So Far. A Loss for Words and Into It Over It were the openers. Even at this point, though, they weren't playing super massive venues as a headliner. On that tour, they played Gramercy in New York, which is a 500 cap, and Bottom Lounge in Chicago, which is a 700 cap. But after that, they did support for the early November alongside the Swellers and Young Statues, and then a run with Mixtapes and Day Trader in June of 2012. During that month, they announced that they would be releasing Suburbia with 11 additional songs of B-sides and rarities, along with a book called A Year as a Ghost. It was also in that month that they had already began writing for what would be their fourth full-length album, just a year after Suburbia had come out. Looking back, it's surprising to see how they didn't really do much in terms of touring in the summer of 2012. July and August were pretty quiet for the band, which is unusual considering those are basically your prime months out of the year for touring, but they had just toured their asses off for over a year straight, and their break wasn't long, because that fall they would go out as direct support for Yellow Card on a North American tour. Early 2013, they were busy. They had finished writing their new album and headed into the studio with Steve Evitz again in January. They released the Sleeping on Trash compilation that I mentioned a lot in the first part of the dive, and then they went out on a headliner with Fireworks and Hostage Calm in March. But before the tour started, they announced that they would release their new album, The Greatest Generation, on May 14th through Hopeless Records. They revealed the artwork and track listing that day as well. A week later, they released the first single from the album, Passing Through a Screen Door. It was fast, in your face, Dan sounded familiar but powerful, and I remember feeling pretty instantly like this was going to be the soundtrack to my summer that year. By the time 2013 rolled around, the modern pop punk wave was in full swing, with bands like Neck Deep, Knuckle Puck, State Champs, and Real Friends all starting to rise through the ranks. But the Wonder Years had been around for a minute now, and they were about to put out the biggest album of their career, and we could all feel it. Dismantling Summer was the second single, came out on April 15th. It was a little different for the band, it wasn't a through and through ripper, more mid-tempo. They were trying to flex their musical progression, but honestly this fell a little flat. Felt like they were trying to do too much with this song. But after this they dropped The Bastards, The Vultures, The Wolves on May 2nd. This felt like a little more of a proper ballad from the band. And then on May 14th, they released The Greatest Generation. It debuted at number 20 on the top 200 with about 20,000 units first week, more than doubling their first week from Suburbia. Now the industry was like, okay, these guys are onto something. And they ended up getting some of the biggest looks of their career on The Greatest Generation cycle. In support of the album's release, they played four sets in four days in four separate states. Philadelphia at 6 p.m. on May 10th with Modern Baseball, New York City at 12 a.m. on May 11th with A Loss for Words, Chicago at 10 a.m. on May 11th with Mixtapes, and Anaheim at 6 p.m. on May 11th with Versus the World and The Sheds. And what did they spend that entire summer doing? You got it again, playing Warp Tour. I saw them that year in Chicago and they packed out the main stage mid-afternoon with ease. But it was in the fall that they would get the biggest look of their career at that point. The Wonder Years were added as the opening band to a Data Remembers fall headlining tour with All Time Low, Pierce the Veil. Remember, ADTR were also the biggest they had ever been at this point, and it was by far bigger than any other band in the scene. 
What separates me from you was massive for them, and All I Want was and remains their most successful song, peaking at number 12 on alternative radio, and at that point, they had just released their follow-up, Common Courtesy, and it did 98,000 first week. And the Wonder Years were going to open for their crowds. It was an arena tour, so they played between 4,000 and 7,000 caps that whole run. It was a massive look for everyone involved. In November of 2013, the band went over to the UK and headlined Warp's run over there. The next spring, they went on a North American headliner with support from Defeater, Citizen, Real Friends, and Modern Baseball. This time around, they were finally headlining a House of Blues-sized tour, over a thousand caps. The Greatest Generation Cycle made The Wonder Years a sustainable headlining band. Super quick sidebar on that tour specifically, Defeater was originally supposed to be direct support, but they had to drop off before it started because their vocalist Derek had to have hip surgery and fireworks ended up taking their spot. I was a huge Defeater fan back in the day and was always so frustrated because I felt like they deserved to be way bigger than they were and I remember thinking this tour was going to be a solid look for them and a step in the right direction but it never happened. But back to the Wonder Years, they spent the beginning of the summer of 2014 in the UK on a headlining tour with support from state champs and a loss for words. The band actually took a bit of a break that summer when Soupy launched his side project, Aaron West and the Roaring Twenties. He released an album called We Don't Have Each Other through Hopeless Records on July 8th. That fall, the Wonder Years returned to full capacity with another U.S. headliner with support from The Story So Far, Modern Baseball, and Narwhals. I don't think they played a single House of Blues venue on that run, but it was a House of Blues-sized tour, with caps usually ranging from 1,000 to 1,500 or so. In November of 2014, the band celebrated their 10-year anniversary by playing The Upsides, Suburbia, and Greatest Generation front-to-back over the course of three shows. It was during the second half of 2014 that Dan had apparently been suffering from chronic writer's block, and by January of 2015, was in panic mode to come up with content for what would be the band's next album. Here's what he said at that time. I was like, we're over, the band's over, and I've let everyone down, and it's my fucking fault, and my best friends who are relying on me to write lyrics, I failed them all. I failed everybody, and I am the fucking worst. I just lay around depressed. In another interview, he said, I was at this turning point with the new record where I was like, I don't want to write about the suburban American experience anymore. I was thinking about other things in life. It started to feel like I was in a foot race with an expanding universe and I was never going to get to the finish line. So the band entered pre-production for the new album on March 13th with Steve Evitz yet again, and about a month later on April 19th, they had finished the recording process. Then, on June 29th, the Wonder Years announced that they would release their fifth album, No Closer to Heaven, on September 4th through Hopeless Records. The first single off the album was called Cardinals, and this is where I believe we begin part three of the Wonder Years history. There's a lot to unpack about this song here. Anytime a band follows up what had been the biggest album of their career is a incredibly critical moment. I cannot stress that enough. That next album can make or break the rest of your career. We've seen it with so many scene bands over the last two decades who just couldn't follow up their big moment with another one. That didn't exactly happen with The Wonder Years here, but a version of it did. Let me explain. 
Cardinals was released on June 30th with a music video. The video shows Dan carrying someone who looks to be either dead or on the verge of death. In typical suburban Wonder Years fashion, he's running out of a cul-de-sac carrying this man. They're both soaking wet, and later on in the video we see he's running to an ambulance with a medic yelling out the back for him to run faster, but the ambulance is pulling away at the same time. He never ends up reaching it, and the video ends with him standing in the middle of the street holding his lifeless friend. This was, and still is, a very striking video. I was at Alt Press when this dropped, and I remember we were anticipating a pretty big response to it, but I remember watching the video for the first time, finishing it, and thinking, wait, what did the song sound like? And I know this happened to a lot of other people too because I remember digging through YouTube comments and seeing a lot of people saying that they had to watch it a few times just to hear the song. Two reasons this happened. They created such a striking visual element to the song that the song simply became a soundtrack at best and background noise at worst. The viewer is too busy trying to decipher what's happening in the clip, and it's kind of genius because of how simple it is, but the other side is that people aren't paying attention to the actual product you're putting out, which is the song. And the other reason is the production. Steve progressively buried the mixes from suburbia to generation to no closer to heaven. There's actually a lot of life in the songs on this album, but it's so hard to tell because everything feels so cramped and subdued in the mix. Cardinals is actually a fucking ripper. The bridge is basically a breakdown. The triple harmonies and the final refrain are massive. It's really a banger, but unless you're hearing it live in the front row, it can be hard to realize it. It was like a catch-22 that launched this album, and the bottom line is that it ultimately wasn't good for the reception of the music. And once you start a campaign off on the wrong foot, it's damn near impossible to get your feet back underneath you. But so this would be the first time the band would be in campaign mode instead of cycle mode on Warp Tour. Campaign mode is the time period between album announcement and album release, and cycle mode is everything post-album release. So being on Warped during campaign mode when you already have hype is honestly better in my opinion as opposed to being on it during cycle mode, just because you can try to milk those pre-orders all summer long. For example, that's exactly what Neck Deep did on the Peace and the Panic in 2017. But so the Wonder Years spend summer 2015 on Warped. They released the second single of No Closer to Heaven on July 31st called Cigarettes and Saints. This was just a misstep altogether. You can't release a moody ballad as a promo single for your album if you're a pop punk band known for fast-paced bangers with big hooks. At this point, we knew the album was still going to be a solid first week because they were pushing it on Warped, but it wouldn't push them to the next level like we were maybe anticipating before they started the campaign for it. Anyone who has watched sales over the scene's history knows you can't throw a sound change like that at a fan base like the Wonder Years, and it's unfortunate because it puts them in a difficult spot evolution-wise. Obviously, as Dan gets older, he's not going to want to sing upsides in suburbia type things anymore. So what do they become? 
to be honest, and I just knew it was never going to happen, obviously, but I wanted to see them release their version of Four Year Strongs in some way, shape, or form. I just want to see what a Rock Radio Wonder Years album sounds like. And as we'll talk about in a second, we actually did end up getting a very small taste of that a little later on. No Closer to Heaven was officially released on September 4th, 2015 through Hopeless Records, and I know I was just super critical of the campaign, but any previous Wonder Years fan who liked Generation or Suburbia will absolutely like a majority, if not all, of this album. But I cannot stress how important campaigns are. Campaigns determine pre-orders and getting fans through the door again, and if they don't come into the shop to look around and listen, they'll never hear what the rest of the record has to offer. But Heaven ended up giving the band the biggest first week of their career with 22,000 units and a number 12 debut on the top 200. But remember what we talked about during the Devil Wears Prada dives? Remember with Roots and Dead Throne first weeks? Minimal increase isn't bad, but it is a sign of stunted growth. And that's kind of the tale of the rest of the Wonder Years career. They went out on a headliner in the fall of 2015 in support of the album with Motion City Soundtrack, State Champs, and You Blew It. And at the beginning of 2016, they went on a UK tour supporting Enter Shikari, and then a U- another US headliner with Let Live tiny moving parts and microwave and then another u.s headliner in the fall with real friends knuckle puck seaway and moose blood this point of the wonder years history it's honestly funny because all of the scene blogs are gone alt press is a shit show and the documentation of bands activities went to shit again it's honestly kind of hard to find what they've done over the last three years and put a cohesive timeline together the same way it is for the beginning of their career Basically, they spent 2017 touring, they got a co-sign from NASCAR superstar Dale Earnhardt Jr., who revealed he was a fan and actually came out to one of their shows. Anyone who knows me personally knows NASCAR is my true love. It was there for me before music, and it'll be there after, and Junior has been my favorite driver for the last two decades. And I knew he was into some scene shit, but he really went full-on in during 2017. He honestly helped bring the Dangerous Summer back, but that's just a story for another time. They released an EP called Burst and Decay that summer, which just featured some reworked songs. They went on a fall headliner that had them back to the level underneath House of Blues again. This third part of the Wonder Years career is so odd because everything was down at this point, pretty noticeably, despite them basically being on a world tour for two years on this cycle. And then all of a sudden they were ready to release their next album in 2018 called Sister Cities. This was the first album since Upsides that they didn't go with Steve Evitz as a producer. Instead, they went with Joe Ciccirelli, who is a pretty well-seasoned indie rock producer, having done records with everyone from the White Stripes to Manchester Orchestra. This album is probably the most progressive sound we've ever gotten from the band. It's a very dark indie alt-rock record, very far from even some of the moments on No Closer to Heaven. Raining in Kyoto has grown to be one of my favorite songs from the band, just because it finds them in that rock radio element. If the Wonder Years would have started a decade earlier and released this album in the early 2010s, I truly believe they would have easily been lumped into that brand new Manchester Orchestra Kevin Devine Club, and honestly, I think it's a valid path for the band, but the problem is now that the circle doesn't really exist anymore. 
But somehow, and I don't understand how, and I've talked to a lot of people about this, and I have never really gotten a direct explanation, but the band managed to sell 22,000 units first week again on this album. There was definitely some double counting going on, but there's double counting going on with every album. Everything considered, it was a huge first week that nobody really saw coming at this point for the band, and somehow they broke even. The problem is, even if a lot of people that stuck around after No Closer to Heaven stuck around for this album, they didn't after it came out. I've had so many people ask what happened to the Wonder Years over the last year or so. We've actually seen the band teasing a return to their old sound. They've released two throwback songs called Breakless and Out on My Feet over the last couple weeks that are made to sound like they came from the upsides and suburbia. It is yet to be seen if whatever their next album will be will also feature a throwback sound, but the people who have heard these new songs are definitely fans, but they've just squandered so much momentum over the last two years, and it might just be me, but it feels like way longer than that since the band has felt like a true force. But listen, bottom line is that this band changed the course of pop punk. If you break down the genre's history in the scene, you got the late 90s slash early 2000s with bands like Saves the Day and the Get Up Kids and then the mainstream peak with Fall Out Boy, Good Charlotte, Simple Plan, Blink in the mid 2000s and then Neon hit in the second half of the 2000s with All Time Low and Mayday Parade and Boys Like Girls and then that second wave emo weaved its way back into the late late 2000s and early 2010s with The Wonder Years and Man Overboard which brought the genre to a its modern wave of neck deep, knuckle puck, and so on. And now we're here in 2020, and the scene doesn't really exist as a cohesive unit anymore, but Dan and the guys are still pumping out four chord bangers, and honestly, good for them. I hope they realize the impact they had on the scene, because they really did change the course of an entire genre. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any requests for deep dives, email me at notetoscene at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Note to Scene on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you enjoy the show, please drop a review on iTunes. I'd appreciate it very much. Until next week, stay safe, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.